Hello and welcome to this episode of Edelman Editions, focusing on the Financial Conduct Authority's flagship consumer duty. My name is Aidan Holloway. I'm the UK Head of Financial Services at Edelman Smithfield, Edelman's specialist financial markets boutique. And my name is Lassica Shah. I'm Senior Director and UK Head of Special Projects. On 31st July 2023, the FCA introduced a new consumer duty, which applies to all open financial products. It is designed to dramatically affect the way that UK financial institutions interact with their customers. The regulator expects it to lead to a major shift in financial services, boosting competition and considerably strengthening consumer protections. At its core, the duty requires financial services providers to demonstrate that their products and services provide good outcomes and fair value for their clients. But what do these phrases mean to consumers? What happens when financial services companies' interpretations of consumer duty come into contact with these customers? And how should we expect the regulator and customers to hold providers to account in this new environment? So we, Edelman Smithville, we wanted to find out more on the attitudes to consumer duty from consumers themselves. And via a poll of 4,000 UK adults, we asked whether they're aware of the duty, whether they feel their providers currently deliver good outcomes and a fair price. Spoiler alert, they don't think they do. In order to give insights to retail-facing financial institutions on the risks and opportunities that the consumer duty presents, some of whom may hopefully listen to this podcast. We wanted to get an expert take on these findings, but also discuss the broader topic of consumer duty with someone with intimate knowledge of financial regulation and the FCA. We're absolutely delighted and privileged to be joined today by the ex-interim CEO of the FCA itself, Chris Willard. Chris, now a partner at EY and chair of its global regulatory network, had a 25-year stint within government, um, including um, eight years of the FCA, culminating in leading it, and has intimate knowledge about its inner workings. He is also a board trustee of the UK Consumers Association, which, and a member of the City of London's Socioeconomic Task Force. In 2021, he was appointed CBE by Her Majesty the Late Queen for services to financial regulation and financial innovation. Chris, it's a pleasure having you here. Thanks very much for joining. Um, if I might kick off with a question linked to our research, and in particular around people's awareness of consumer duty. Our research found that 34% of consumers are aware of consumer duty. Um, a number we found pretty high. Are you surprised by that, the, the level of consumer awareness? I think the level of consumer awareness, certainly that sort of level on any regulation, is, is pretty high, actually. Although perhaps it's not a surprise because we have seen consumer duty being mentioned more and more in the press, uh, both on the pages of maybe more tabloid newspapers, but also uh, within the financial press and, and certainly specialist investor uh, magazines. So, so that sort of level of awareness is, is high, but maybe not a complete surprise. Interesting. Yeah, we we also found that um, that one in five had heard from a claimant law firm. So perhaps there's a that that may be an indication of um, of potential trouble ahead. Um, our research also found that satisfaction levels with most financial providers um, are low, and that few believe they currently provide good outcomes and fair value. Notwithstanding the difficulty in changing consumer perceptions in a low trust category um, and the fact that the regulator does not assess perception, do you think that financial services firms could do more to communicate their provision of good outcomes to their customers? For example, are they generally clear enough on fees uh, and the value customers get in exchange for those fees? Or in the case of insurance, why the same insurance product is still good value even if the cost has gone up as it has recently? 
I think there's certainly more that many firms could do to communicate clearly with their customers, uh, particularly about the benefits of, of products they may offer. Um, in fairness, I think what we are seeing across the market is firms really responding very actively to the introduction of consumer duty and planning in ways that I think the regulator intended, thinking about customer outcomes, thinking about how they make sure that they're understood in terms of the products that they offer. But you're right, this is historically a low trust market uh, across many, many parts of it. And so you know, trying to double down on that, trying to make that additional effort is something that's really important for firms to do. And I think where you see firms beginning to do that, it does shift the dial with their customers. Um, but there's, there's clearly a bigger journey there. So some opportunity there for, for financial services firms to differentiate themselves. Yeah, completely. And um, I think one of the things we certainly see at EY from a, from a client perspective is those uh, firms across all sorts of different sectors, so banking, insurance, wealth and asset management, those that lean forward uh, and embrace the duty as, as much as an opportunity as a sort of regulatory cost, those are the firms that I think are beginning to turn that dial. Um, what do you think the regulator is going to be looking for when it comes to judging whether firms are providing good good outcomes for customers? So I think the FCA has been pretty clear. Um, they set out a number of outcomes that they're looking for and they range from fair value and how have firms thought about and evidenced what's the exchange of value with the, with the customer. So that's very much something that's happening sort of technically, if you like, behind the scenes before the product is sold. Uh, but then also firms thinking about how they're communicating. Have customers really understood the product that they're buying and the, and the value of it? Um, and then what happens in terms of customer service? So if things go wrong, if a customer wants to change uh, the product they have, if they want to leave, if they want to go elsewhere in the market, how smooth is that process? And in particular, this question around the symmetry between how easy it is to maybe buy a product and how easy it is to move on. Uh, to another provider if you're not getting good service. Great. And um, many of the companies that are impacted by consumer duty, um, by dental, whether it's their customer base or actually the products they're providing, are listed companies. Do you think they've done enough to persuade both investors and sell-side analysts that they don't or, or won't fall under the consumer duty or fall foul of it? I think when you look across many parts of the financial sector, uh, where they're listed, they are definitely trading at a discount of, of book to value. Um, and one of the things we do hear analysts say, and they hear analysts say, is there is this question around consistency uh, in relation to meeting regulation. So not just the consumer duty, but regulation in general. But I think if you think what the duty is trying to do is to say, put customers at the heart of the business... Uh, make sure that you are thinking about customers at every step of the value chain. Well, those are the kinds of principles that, if you follow them, should make it far, far easier to ensure that you know your firm is compliant, but also that where things happen that require a judgment, where circumstances change, actually your management team is really thinking about that in real time rather than simply ticking boxes. Uh, Chris, um how have certain market conditions uh, and regulatory changes, you know, such as the general insurance pricing reforms or rising interest rates, shaped the relationship between firms and consumers to date? Will the consumer duty affect these dynamics at all? So I think you're already seeing change in the market. 
So if we think about wealth and asset management for a moment, we're seeing press reports of somewhere between 35 and 40% of wealth and asset managers thinking about changing their pricing as a result of the consumer duty. In other spaces, you've had the FCA's intervention around the savings rate that many people get on their cash savings, uh, asking firms to explain themselves, asking why the full benefit of interest rate rises haven't been passed on there. Now, that's a very complicated situation because there's obviously the relationship between people who have mortgages, people who have cash savings, what's the relative benefit that each of them potentially receives from banks and how do banks balance their business models. But nevertheless, I think the debate is beginning to change because the FCA is leaning forward into that space uh, and willing to use the consumer duty in a, in, a, in a very particular kind of way. I think over time, and you already mentioned this, you know, that awareness by consumers that there is a new duty here, there is a new standard that firms are expected to uh, live up to, is entering their consciousness. And they are increasingly, I think, holding... Uh, the people that have services and products with more to account and, and, and possibly demanding more. Where does um, where does things like innovation within finance come? Is there an intersection here with consumer duty when it hits? Because I know you at the FCA you were a big champion of uh, innovation and then sandbox initiatives and the like. Mm. Do you think things like the advent of, um, of AI, um, as we've seen it recently, does that jar with consumer duty or confirm see the uh, the implementation of certain types of AI as actually a value add to clients and an ability to reduce costs and provide better outcomes at a, at a fairer value? I think technology is neutral in these situations. So it can be used in ways that are beneficial to customers. It can be used in ways that tend to head towards bad outcomes. Um, certainly when I was at the FCA, the mantra we had was, we're interested in innovation in the interests of consumers. So it wasn't just innovation for innovation's sake. And I think you see that continue uh, within the way the regulator uh, behaves today. So I think you can have some very positive things here um, when we think about the wider market. So, you know, how do you use AI uh, to help detect fraud? How do you use AI uh, around financial crime and things that ultimately do affect consumers? And I think that's a very positive thing. I think you can also streamline services. I mean, most of us now, let's face it, do the bulk of our banking on an app uh, rather than, you know, a branch at a certain time that suits the bank. We, we actually work at times, do our banking at times that suit us. Um, I think in the future, you can imagine AI and other technologies being used in a way that keeps enhancing that journey for the consumer. But crucially there always has to be that safety net. There will be people who need to engage uh, human to human. You certainly have an expectation both in things like the European AI Act, but also in the way the regulators have acted for years, that there's human control over those new technologies wherever they're deployed. Um, so I think you know there's some really quite positive things that can happen here, but they need to happen within certain guardrails, and, and I think the regulators will ensure that those guardrails are there in time. We're um, a few months into consumer duty um, for open products. There have been a few high-profile victims, uh, if, you, if, if you, could, you could call it that way, perhaps. But how and when should we judge the success of the consumer duty? Because the FCA has been very clear in saying this is day one of a new way of engaging with customers. 
But how do you think they assess it, and when will they, when will they, and other stakeholders be able to see whether consumer duty is actually working in the interests of consumers whilst maintaining healthy competition and mm -hmm. innovation within the financial sector? I think that's a really good question. Um, the way the FCA appears to be approaching the supervision of this um, is not to be sucked into producing pages and pages and pages of guidance. I mean, this was always intended to be an outcomes-based piece of regulation, which means each of the 60,000 firms that they regulate need to think about what does it mean for them, what does it mean for their customers. And so what we're seeing is this kind of rolling pattern of supervision where the FCA is looking at groups of firms together. It's saying what looks like good practice to them, what, look like, what, what looks like poor practice. And then saying, right, okay, where can we see basically the market rising towards what looks like best practice? And I think they will keep that sort of rolling pattern going over time, which does a couple of things. Firstly, it means that you know, the standard never really ever sort of ossifies or stays still. Uh, it will keep moving upwards. It also means that um, you know, the work is never quite done. But at the same time, it's a really powerful way of reinforcing the message they've given that says, this is never going to be one and done. This has got to be part of what you do as BAU as a firm. And I think one of the things certainly we're seeing with our clients is once that initial sort of heavy lift to get to day one was done, we're now seeing far more emphasis on how do you make this part of business as usual? How do you make sure that you know, your data, your systems, your governance, your reporting, all are geared around reinforcing, complying with the duty? And I think in time, you know, the big question, as you put it, is going to be, well, what ultimately do consumers think? And how do you measure and how do you think about as a firm showing that sort of hopefully rising level of customer satisfaction over time? And I think that's one of the most powerful things that firms can think about in terms of being able to demonstrate to the regulator that what they're doing is working. And the final point I'll just make about this is, you know, we're seeing firms get the first questions from the FCA and nearly always question one is, tell us how your implementation of this has improved outcomes for your consumers, which is a really, I think, quite smart question to ask if you're trying to drive that outcomes-based piece. And so although they're not regulating perception, actually perception is really important and driving satisfaction levels and being able to demonstrate that's part of the good outcome um, provision actually is something that firms should be thinking about. Yeah, and I, and I think also just in terms of long-term, where is the market going? And we've seen a few very high-profile cases of, you know, what does it do to your share price if you, if you, if you move in the direction of where the duty is trying to drive? I actually think it will be the firms that respond. It will be the firms that are prepared to, um, you know, do some of the hard work now that ultimately are setting themselves up long-term for that sustainable set of returns. And I think when we, when we come back to that question about the market analysts and what are they looking for, they are looking for that sustainability of returns. There's no point making loads of money one year and then having to pay it back in remediation the following year. Um, and that, to some extent, is what the consumer duty is trying to drive out, I think, ultimately. Stepping back a little bit in time to the duty's inception, um, do you think that a higher standard of consumer protection in the financial service industry was actually needed in the market? At the time of its inception, I was obviously at the FCA um, uh, thinking about this, this question. And I think, certainly from the regulator's perspective, there was this sense that treating customers fairly, which is a set of rules that came before consumer duty, 
they'd done a lot in the market. They'd, they'd definitely raised the standard to a certain point. But I think there were still too many cases the FCA was seeing where firms had lost sight of consumers and then harm had occurred or where the market felt insufficiently joined up along the value chain, particularly where distributors were involved with, with, with wholesale producers. Um, and that needed to be refocused and that needed to come back together again. So, so that's really the sort of conception of the, the consumer duty. The other thing that I think was also true was there was quite a lot of talk within the industry about, well, how do you strike this balance between, on the one hand, principles-based regulation and on the other the certainty but the complexity of sort of black and white rules and that's where outcomes based regulation came from as a, as a concept but the the power for the regulator of that is that it is something that never quite stands still and so there is the ability to adjust over time as the market changes as consumers change in terms of their preferences and, and their habits and i think that's really what uh if we come forward to today the fca is striking at is how do you get that joined up view of the consumer inside firms, but also how do you think not just about have I met the standard today, but actually what's the future going to look like? So companies are effectively incentivized to design and push forward best practice. Yeah, I mean, that's the theory behind it. Um, I mean, I think there will be times when firms say, look, for my audience, for my target intended audience, for my product, sometimes you know a slightly more basic standard might be the right answer yeah. you know how do i have the product that sort of does what it says on the tin but no more uh, and some of the pieces of best practice may be choices for them but i think on the whole if you look at some of the early work that's gone on and some of the early letters that the fca has published i think a lot of that is really about cleaning up markets and moving towards a sort of pretty basic level of best practice at this stage um, and I think also if we look at the, you know, the work that we do as, as consultants now, um, you know, most of our clients I think will probably see it in that way right now. Over time maybe it will, it will differentiate more, but I think right now there's a sense of, yeah, these are, these are sort of necessary steps to take in the market. How do you see the enforcement of the consumer duty yet ro rolling out? Are we likely to see big fines and penalties or do you think the regulator will be taking a more hardline approach to enforcement? So, I mean, first and foremost, it's worth remembering that when we talk about a new consumer duty and a new principle being added to the FCA's rulebook, that can feel quite academic. But the reality is every charge sheet starts from the breach of one of the once upon a time 11 and now 12 principles. And so first and foremost, consumer duty is an enforcement tool. It's designed to give the FCA a very wide discretion um, and at some point, no doubt, they will use that discretion. I think at the moment we are in a phase, and it's not surprising, where a lot more of the FCA's activity is designed to sort of address gaps. It's designed to bring the industry through the first phase of something that's new. It's about highlighting best practice and sort of, if you like, pushing uh, the industry along in, in some respects rather than necessarily going to enforcement as the first tool. But I think they've been pretty clear in what they've said publicly that that first phase may well come. Uh, they will start taking a harder approach towards certain sectors and certain things that they regard as higher risk for consumers. Um, and so I think it's only a matter of time before we see enforcement and that's clearly likely to include 
uh, fines and other penalties attached to it. But but right where we are now, I think the emphasis really is on firms getting this right. And which sectors and subsectors do you see being in that sort of high risk bucket? What do the regulators see? So it's obviously not for me to, to to make that judgment. That's very much for the regulators to signal. I think they've been pretty clear so far, though, that you know when they think about credit products, particularly yep. credit products that are targeted towards people on lower incomes, uh, they're going to look at that space quite closely. I think they've also signalled uh, to the insurance industry that although in many ways the insurers were ahead of the game because of the earlier actions that you mentioned, uh, you know, they've certainly had to think about pricing and fair value much earlier than many other sectors. I think they will go back and look at that in the round. Yep. Um, but the reality is, I mean, the, you know, the early letters that we're seeing from them go very, very broadly. They're across every sector. Uh, they're pretty much across most products. Um, and so I think we can expect there will be quite a wide net cast here um, rather than the FCA just, if you like, picking on one sector as a particular problem. I think they're trying to look at raising standards across the board. There's one um, one, one subsector I'm interested to get your view on, um, financial advisory or, or, or rolled into wealth management. Um RDR took place what, 11 years ago. Mm. Do you think that consumer duty actually might lead to reform of RDR? Um, we've had quite a few semi-scandals or certainly lots of news around hidden fees and um, bundled fees. Mm. And I know the FCA is looking at that. But do you think fundamentally it actually might change how people receive advice and perhaps even democratise advice a little bit more? I think this is an area that's really interesting. I think it's an area where we're going to see almost constant movement. I mean, I think if you look after look, look over the last decade or so, the FCA has really kept coming back to this space, both in terms of trying to deal with the real difficulty of what's this split between regulated advice and guidance uh, and what are the protections that apply in each one, the relationship then with the financial services compensation scheme and how does that whole piece hang together um, and I think it's quite interesting that, you know, quite often having launched those pieces of work, the conclusions only have sort of moved the ground on quite glacially because it is a genuinely hard set of problems. I mean, I've sort of been around that particular island twice and it, it, it is genuinely a tough set of problems to solve in terms of that balance between consumer protection, access to advice, access to guidance and what the market itself is interested in providing. Um, because I think sometimes there's this sort of image of, you know, if only we could get this right, there's thousands of people willing to sort of rush forward and advise people who don't have an awful lot of money to do things that are, you know, potentially quite uh, sort of long-term, and I'm not sure there is an enormous amount of appetite to do that in the market at the moment, particularly given how the regulatory risk uh, potentially weighs in there. Um, on the other hand, I think we are seeing some real movement on consumer duty. We're seeing a lot of reporting in the press of wealth and asset management firms in particular changing their fees, changing their approach, thinking about transparency with customers, thinking about the types of fees they charge, how they charge them, you know, are they ad valorem or are they a single one-off fee now? Um, and that will mean change in the industry. At the same time, you've also got various policy consultations running, which I do think could lead to some changes in terms of how the people think about advice, guidance. Is there something in between? Are there products that, that perhaps are easier to apply those 
uh, kind of guidelines to if they're slightly looser and they're designed to get people saving more. Um, but it's not an easy space. It's a space that you know quite often gets explored and then people kind of get a bit stuck, um, as I did once upon a time. <laughs> so watch this space for potential more reform of that that area. Mm. And uh, we've, we talked about good outcomes for consumers. What about good outcomes for financial services firms? Because I think intrinsically what you've been saying, Chris, is that if done well, there's actually a lot of opportunity, both from a customer service position, but from a from a growth point of view, and therefore investors and sell-side analysts should start to see the benefit as well. Um, so do you think actually on balance the duty will have a, a positive impact overall for financial services firms mm. as well as for consumers? And on the other hand, there are there any potential downsides you see either from a consumer provision point of view or from an F- FS point of view? Yeah. So, I mean, uh, the, as always with these things, there's a balance of risk. So I think if you think about the positive case for a second, there are many firms out there who are really thinking about how do they have a much more consistent uh, valuation in the market and that comes from not being subjected to periods of having to essentially disgorge profits uh, where things went wrong from a from a regulatory perspective so how do you get that more right more consistently more of the time uh, and I think consumer duty and taking consumer duty seriously offers a route for firms to really think about that and sort of reinvent their own internal compliance it's also true Um, and we see this in a number of our clients across the market, that people are now starting to turn their minds to, are there benefits that come from consumer duty in terms of how we think about our customers holistically, how we think about the services they may need in the future, how we maybe even design products a bit differently because, you know, we now have this, this sort of push, if you like, from the regulators to say, think about ultimately the needs of the customers and there are certainly people whose needs are not being met at the moment so there are possibly new or certainly tweaked products that could be out there and we're seeing large firms and actually quite a lot of boutique firms thinking about that pretty seriously so so there's the option there for you know more consistent valuation potentially some areas of growth and um certainly a you know a different way a cleaner way of thinking about how you engage with customers i think it's also driving a number of issues that historically have always been the sort of the El Dorado, if you like, of running a large financial institution. So how do you get to that single view of the customer, which people have talked about for years? Actually, now there's a real imperative to do that, to not just see, if you like, the the, the commercial value of the customer, but also their needs from a compliance perspective and not to do that twice. You know, do that in one system, clean the data up. Um, So so there's there's a range of potential positives there. On the risk side, I mean, I think many firms are aware that if you get to a sense of best practice, do you get to a kind of a market norm? Will you get people willing to sort of depart from that market norm in the name of competition or will people be a bit inhibited from from doing that? So you could end up in a world where even if the standard by which customers are treated improves, it then sort of ossifies a bit and sort of there's a bit of stability in the market that maybe not in their long-term interest. You know, you might want to have the person who's going to do things a bit differently and, and will they be uh, put off from doing that. Um, I think you've also got some risks around, as you said, you know, 20% of the awareness might be coming from a uh, claims management firm at the moment. Does this just open 
uh, a big doorway into you know an, another set of claims that will just put people off from from coming forward with products. Um, and I think to some extent, I mean, the, the duty is designed not to be just TCF again. It is designed to sort of draw a line in the sand and say there's a date at which this started. But nevertheless, um, you know, there clearly must be risks linked to that depending on how uh, decisions play out between the FCA and in particular the financial ombudsman and, you know, all of the firms that we work with. And indeed, in fairness, the regulators, I think, are aware of that, that potential risk. But on the whole, if you look at most successful industries, you know, most successful industries have a very, very sort of intimate relationship with their customers, understanding their needs, understanding how their needs change over time, the tweaks, the nuances. And that's often the key to survival. Now, you know, financial services are a bit different from that. The way that we want our banks to be around for another 100 years, the, the concerns we have about, you know, prudential requirements and those sorts of things does mean the market operates a bit differently. But nevertheless, I think that focus on the customer, right from the top of the firm at the board all the way through to you know people designing products, people selling those products on the front line, I mean, I think that in itself intrinsically should be a good thing. And I think certainly most of our clients are seeing it that way. And how do you think the consumer duty has been received within the industry? Do you have a sense of whether compliance rates are likely to be high at the moment? From what we can see, there was a very high level of preparation for the duty. And uh, certainly, you know, the vast, vast majority of firms got themselves ready for July 23. Um, and even if they then have larger programs, you know, particularly around their IT infrastructure or things like that, that still have to roll out and complete, um, they are reaching that standard that the FCA would describe as substantively compliant. You know, there's, there's a real interest in not... Um, not being seen to be behind the pack in this. And I think there are some firms who've genuinely tried to embrace it from a strategic perspective uh, from quite early on. So I think what you will see across the market as the FCA keeps rolling out is probably a pretty high standard of compliance. That said, there will clearly be places that the FCA starts placing emphasis. So we can see they're placing emphasis on what information a board's receiving how are boards thinking about the profitability of products? How are they thinking about uh, perhaps being far more intrusive and far more inquiring uh, into their own companies around the treatment of customers and those kinds of questions? So it's perfectly possible that you've got firms that have had a good program, that have taken steps to, to be substantively compliant, to try and do the right thing, and still find they're being pushed for more uh, by the regulator. But I don't think that's you know a bad thing for either of them. I mean, I think that's a that's still a sense of the duty is probably succeeding uh, in those respects. There will be, of course, as there always is in any market, people who are outliers to that. Uh, there will be examples of poor compliance, and I suspect it's those firms that haven't really tried to move uh, the bar that will be the first ones that that get that enforcement attention that you were talking about earlier. And if we can look briefly, think about complaints and levels of complaints, the ombudsman in the first instance, the FCA, I think, anticipates or hopes that complaints will fall as firms basically do a better, do better by their customers. Mm. However, our data suggests that actually, with heightened awareness, 
slightly driven by claimant law firms and claims management services, low levels of trust in financial services, um, high dissatisfaction levels, um, suggest that actually that they're quite motivated to complain and might be possibly more so because they know about consumer duty and they will hold their providers to a higher account along with the regulator. Mm. Where do you sit on that fence? Do you think actually, you know, with a motivated consumer base as your with your consumer champion hat on is actually the fact that lots of people know about it mean they're going to scrutinize the service they get much more and will we get more complaints and issues before things smooth out so i think having a heightened level of awareness amongst consumers is likely to result in more complaints that would that would appear logical that would appear to be um you know a, a likely outcome of that awareness but I think there's a couple of factors that then affect, well, what really happens in practice. So first of all, um, let's say people do go down the complaints route. Well, firms have an opportunity to put things right before it gets to the ombudsman. And indeed, the FCA and the ombudsman would always encourage firms to actually try and resolve things before they get any further. Um, and so, you know, the quality of what's your complaints handling like, what does it feel like as a, as a process... Um, how do you try and turn that into a positive, both in terms of understanding, well, what was the thing that went wrong? Are lots of customers experiencing that? Are there ways I can put it right? You know, so actually use it as a sort of positive uh, thing for the business to be able to adapt. But also, you know, deal with those complaints slickly. Uh, deal with them in a way that, that customers actually walk away saying, well, okay, it was, it was a bad thing I had to complain, but at least when I, when I did, I got treated well. You know, that's an opportunity to sort of put things straight. But before we even get to that phase, part of the logic behind consumer duty is do things right first time, more of the time. And that's where I think we've got to see the balance play out. That even if consumers are more aware, if you've actually got things set up in a way that you've really understood the customer journey, really understand kind of where the pain points are, then I think you can have... Um, you know, really positive outcomes to begin with before you even get to that complaints point. And and it is a quite an interesting thing that I think we, we'd observe from an, from an EY perspective that, you know, one of the things we've done a lot of is working through um, our behavioural practice, so EY Seren, and following real customer journeys, real customer journeys, not, not the ones that we have in our heads collectively. And, of course, you find that particularly online, you know, people behave in a very different way into which either, you know, the marketing team or the compliance team or the technology team ever intended them to do. You know, their, their, their journeys are far more random through, through you know, the IT architecture and the decision-making systems that financial services firms have. And once you understand that, there is, a, there is a bit of a revelation that says, ah, I can actually see where this is going wrong now. And then you can correct for that. And, and, and those are the kinds of insights that I think will help firms actually manage the number of complaints in the first place. And we've done quite a bit of polling separately as well, which demonstrates there's actually often a misunderstanding over what a financial firm is responsible for and what it crucially isn't responsible for. And expectations are quite skewed in some instances. Uh, so you feel that there's um, an education job to be done on the part of a lot of firms to actually better explain what they where they're adding value, but also what they're doing for you, mm. and what you're getting and what you're not getting. Yeah, and I think there's a, there's a much wider debate then about financial education. 
And and I think sometimes it can get quite polarised into, you know, do you believe that you know every child should be taught from primary school onwards to understand some of the key concepts around, you know, investing money, what to do if you're borrowing, you know, those kinds of things. And I think there's an element of truth in that. But we also know through, you know, an awful lot of behavioural work that both the FCA's done, but also, you know, firms like EY and others in the market, that really timely nuggets of information delivered well can really impact how a customer thinks about you, how they make their own decisions, how uh, they expect things of you or not in the future. Um, and also thinking about the role that disclosure plays and really sort of being quite innovative about that. I mean, I think all too often it's seen as kind of dry thing that, you know, compliance and the general counsel will get round yeah. and... T's and C's. T's and C's and, and, and you... Eight end, font. Yeah. Uh, and it's sort of, you know, can we get through this bit? Whereas, I mean, certainly when I was a regulator, we, we did a number of experiments with a number of firms. And you can do things in this market that, that actually make, you know, T's and C's memorable. People understand what they've bought. They understand what they haven't bought. And it's using the kinds of techniques that other industries have used for years. So if we think about, you know, when was the last time you actually had a dry airline safety video rather than the sort of comedy sketch almost? In the you know, human beings remember comedy far, far more than they ever do being sort of lectured to. And so, you know, if I go a few years back now, you know, there were experiments where, you know, make the T's and C's a bit of a comedy sketch. And people can remember months later, what did they sign up to? What did they buy? Whereas, you know, the following day, if you just gave them something dry, they're probably very unlikely to be able to remember it in detail. Amen to that. More humour in in, um, in regulatory T's and C's. I think and actually we <laughs> found in our research, um, perhaps we could do a sketch at some point, um, but in our research we, we also found that only one in five ever read their T's and C's mm. um, across the board. And we certainly conclude that there's definitely a job here to be done. And, and perhaps financial firms just think that it needs to be dry because they're a financial firm regulated by a serious authority and it needs to be. And that's just, and, and maybe there's a misconception there that it needs to be written by the legal team in obscure legalese with Latin words. Um, and actually, it shouldn't be engaging. Mm. Well, I mean, there's a danger we're going to turn this podcast into a really interesting <laughs> yeah. discussion of T's and C's. Um, yeah. But I'm going to be a bit we nerdy. We go down that rabbit it's hole. It's all right. I'm going to be a bit nerdy for a few seconds. Um, I mean, I think there's, there's a few things in here. I mean, the first thing is the perception of what the regulator does and doesn't require. And clearly firms are very worried about not getting that right. Um, on the other hand, again, you know, from my time as a regulator, I can remember being challenged by a particular bank to say, here's the terms and conditions on our current account. They're ridiculous. Uh, they were actually uh, longer than Charles Dickens' Christmas Carol with a box at the end that says, I've read and understood all of these, please tick. Right. But so, without the sort of the, the redemption message. Yeah, the there, there's no redemption message, <laughs> nor is there any, yeah, there's, there's definitely no turkey for Tiny Tim in those. And um, when the FCA looked through those, actually about a page and a half of A4 was required by the regulator and almost everything else had been built up five successive generations of general counsel over the years who let's face it particularly with cmc's in the market and all sorts of other threats that that, that financial institutions face have no incentive whatsoever to sort of strip back on what your predecessors done you just add to it um 
so there's a you know there's a there's a number of actors and parties in this space i think there's often a quite a low trust environment um and yet i think there's also a lack of recognition that you know many people today buy financial services products on an iphone or you know some of the mobile device and you know we're looking at four or five inches of screen max in which you can get over the key messages that you need to get over so i think personally you know that is an area that's that's probably ripe for reform. Consumer duty doesn't deal with it explicitly now. And I think it will need, you know, regulator, industry, others to come together to fix that over time. But it is something that should be eminently fixable. And in a way in which I think, you know, customers who understand more what they were getting into, that have that degree of simplicity uh, in terms of how a product's explained, I suspect, you know, longer term, far more, far less likely uh, to feel the need to complain uh, and certainly for you know firms themselves you know there are huge costs obviously associated with you know compiling maintaining all of those sorts of documents um, so so maybe a, you know if I'm being an optimist there's a simpler world there great and on that optimistic note one last easy question yes or no um, is the consumer duty likely to achieve its stated objective do you think I would say more yes than no um, I, I mean, I think if maybe I'm being an optimist here, and maybe this is certainly my own biases having uh, been involved in its sort of early years. But if I look at the work that you know many of our clients are doing around the market, um, there is a tremendous effort going into trying to make real change uh, happen as a result of the consumer duty. Um, and I think you know we'll just have to watch this space in terms of what the FCA happens to find over the coming years. But personally, I'd be quite positive about it. So 70-30. Yeah, go on there. Okay, go on okay, there. Okay, if, you want a, okay. if you want a okay. number. Yeah, okay, yeah, thanks. Uh, with that final thought, um, it, it just reminds me to thank you so much, Chris, for your for your time and joining us today and providing us with so many fascinating insights and regulatory pearls of wisdom. Um, uh, perhaps a T's and C's separate sort of breakout session at some other point. Um, but we've really enjoyed our, our conversation with you and, and hope you and the listener have too. Um, lots for financial firms to be thinking about and um, watch this space of further research from us and events around consumer duty in 2024. Uh, thank you again, Chris. Well, thank you very much. Henry.